May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Be seated. This is the second of three parables that Jesus says in Matthew 21 that highlight the conflict and the distance between him and uh, the religious leaders of his day. This is taking place in Holy Week in just a few days uh, these very people that he's criticizing are going to be instrumental in putting Jesus on the cross. Uh, you remember from last week that he told the parable of the two sons. The one son said to his father that I'll work in the vineyard. Um, well, the, the first son said, I will not work in the vineyard, but afterward changed his mind. And then the other son said, I'm going to work in the vineyard, father. But then he did not go. And Jesus accuses the religious leaders of being like that second son, who outwardly is saying yes to God, but inwardly uh, saying no. And then he follows uh, that parable up with this parable. And then uh, next week we'll see the, the final parable, which is even more um, harsh, if, 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 if that's possible, in, in the language and the denunciation that Jesus is pronouncing on, um, on the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day. This particular parable is, I think, a little bit difficult. Um, not so much to understand, but I think uh, sometimes to, to hear this kind of language because it is really countercultural. And we're part of the, the culture, and we live in the culture and swim in this culture. And, and uh, I, I think many people outside of the church would have trouble with this idea that Jesus is propounding here, which is this, that God is going to judge those who re reject the popular notion today. The, just the very idea of the judgment of God makes people bristle. And the reason is, um, a couple of reasons, God is love. God loves people. The Bible teaches that, right? It's clear that the God is love, that God loves people. Uh, so how can a loving God um, and then, of course, there's the reality of religious pluralism today. We live in a religiously diverse culture, which is which is fine, which is good. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, my wife and I were invited to a neighbor's house, and they invited our whole family. <laughs> we all came, gracious couple, put their appearance to Hinduism, and uh, that was evident since we came to the house that different gods and goddesses and saints, different Hindu figures. And, uh, then they had a Jewish couple that was there with their children, and then there was a Roman Catholic couple that was there, and we rounded things out. <laughs> but that was kind of a microcosm of the world we live in today, and it's difficult in this world, in that kind of religiously diverse world, sometimes to assert God is going to judge those who reject his son. Yet that's, that's the teaching here that we see. So I want to look at this parable because I think it will help us think through some of those issues uh, from a biblical perspective. So this is Matthew 21, 33 through 46. And I think the first thing to say about this is um, we, 
based on this parable, we can affirm very strongly that God is love. And that God is patient and that God is long suffering because we see that in the owner of the vineyard and the owner of the vineyard represents God. Doesn't the owner of the vineyard show care and kindness and patience in this parable? He shows his care uh, in the way that he constructs this vineyard. I mean, he's, he's carefully constructing this vineyard. And of course, the background of this, by the way, is the Isaiah 5 passage. Jesus is drawing that out and applying it to the present situation. But uh, the, the vineyard owner um, wants this vineyard to be productive. He plants a hedge around it to protect it. He puts a water tower or water, a watchtower over it so that uh, somebody can guard it and, and make sure that there's no intruders, animals or, or thieves or robbers. He, he puts a wine press within the vineyard. And all this is to ensure that the vineyard is going to be able to grow and to flourish and that the tenants will reap some benefits from this vineyard as well. Because uh, tenant farmers, I learned this in my research in Palestine during this time, uh, tenant farmers were, of course, given a share of the fruit. They had to pay their own expenses. But uh, when the harvest came, uh, the owner would get somewhere between 25 to 50% of the harvest. But this owner has made sure that the vineyard's going to be productive and that the tenant farmers are going to benefit from that. So the, the vineyard is ready. Uh, the contracts have been settled and written up. There's an agreement between the owner and the farmer of who gets what. It's all settled and then the, finally the harvest comes. And the owner says to his servants, why don't you go down to the farm and get our share? And then we read what happens in uh, verses 35 and 36. He, he sent the uh, servant to the tenants to get his fruit, and the tenants took his servants, beat one, killed another, and stoned another. The owner said, let's try this again. He sent even more servants than the first, and they did the same thing. Beat one, killed another, stoned another. And then we come to the heart of this parable, verse 37. This is the heart. This is the climax of the parable. Finally, he sent his son to them. In Matthew and in Luke, it reads, finally he sent his beloved son. The language that the father used to, to identify Jesus at his baptism. Finally he sent his son, his beloved son, saying, they will respect my son. And that word respect has a sense of turn around and if somebody important and important a dignitary or official came into this room or a famous person, um, we would turn towards that person. They would get our attention. And you turn to somebody who's worthy of respect. That's the sense here. The owner is saying, they will at least turn around when they see my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir, come let us kill him and have his inheritance. Let's take this property uh, for ourselves. Jesus is clearly identifying himself as God's son in this parable. And he's predicting what's about to happen to him. Because again, he's getting ready to be uh, crucified. And the, the um, 
events are unfolding rapidly towards that end. So uh, one thing, by the way, I want to say here is that some critics of Christianity will say that Jesus never referred to himself as the Son of God. That's something that the church projected onto Jesus later, but that doesn't really stand up to the teaching of Scripture, and it's right here. Jesus is using this parable. He's referring to himself as the Son, and the Son of the vineyard owner, and the vineyard owner is clearly God. But he says, the vineyard owner sent his son, and they killed him. Now, let's step back from this parable and just think about it in real-world terms. Who acts like this vineyard owner? If you owned a farm, say, an hour or so from here, and you sent some members of your family or maybe some employees to check on the farm and to get the produce and make sure everything is in, in working order and, and it's time to get your check because they've gone to the granary and, and, you, and they, you don't hear from them and you find out that they've been beaten up and one of them has been murdered, would you send another group of servants or family members back to the farm? No. You would, you would say it's, it's time to do something. Call the authorities. And that's what would be normal, you would think, with the vineyard owner. This doesn't make sense. He should have responded with force. He should have raised an army. He should have got a drone or something and gone in there and destroyed these murderous tenants. But instead, he sends more servants. And then, most incomprehensible of all, he sends his son. The point that Jesus is making is that this is a picture of God's incomprehensible loving patience towards those who reject him. It's not supposed to make sense. And the very fact that it doesn't make sense draws your attention to it. Who acts like this? And Jesus is saying, God is this patient. God is this long-suffering. God is a God of forbearance and mercy towards those who reject him. And I'm thankful that God is like that. I'm thankful that God. Can you look back on a time in your life when you were in rebellion against God and maybe running away from God and still he reached out to you? I can think about times like that in my life in my 20s and 30s. In the midst of rebellion, in the midst of wavering and my commitment to Jesus, he reached out to me, maybe through a friend, maybe through a book, maybe through a mentor, uh, times of prayer. But in the very midst of my re rebellion, God was merciful, and he reached out. And, and that's the picture of God that we see here. So whenever we think about this idea and this truth that's in the scripture of God's justice and God's judgment and God's punishment, we have to place it in the context of the picture of God that we see here, that God is also patient and kind and merciful and forbearing. That's the picture we see. Well, then let's look at these other characters. The, the, the vineyard owner is a, is a main character and his son. But how about these antagonists, the tenants in the story? How are they behaving? They're acting as if the owner doesn't exist. They're acting like they can just get away with this. They can just get away with murder. They're acting as if they're not going to be held accountable. They're not satisfied with what the vineyard owner has allotted them. Instead, they want it all. Even to the point of saying, let's kill his son and take the property ourselves. So this is a picture in the first instance. The primary application of this is very clear. 
In the first instance, it's a, it's a picture of Israel's rebellion against God, and particularly the religious leaders. We read it in our Isaiah text. Israel is the vineyard of the Lord. So we don't have to do a lot of guesswork about what, is, what does this mean? Israel is the vineyard of the Lord. So this, this is Israel, and, and the leaders know it. They know that Jesus is pointing them out. In verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was speaking about them. Jesus is saying, this is your history. This is what you've done time and time again. God has sent his rulers, his servants, his leaders to you, and yet you've rejected them. And you can read the Old Testament. And when we read the Old Testament, we see that over and over again, how the people of Israel rebelled against God, rebelled against Moses, grumbled against God in the desert, rejected the prophets. I read recently, just finished reading Jeremiah, who prophesied during the 7th and 6th century before, uh, before Christ. And there's this constant refrain I noticed in the book of Jeremiah. It's a line that's just kind of threaded throughout the whole book. They did not listen. They did not listen. They did not listen. Jeremiah speaks. They did not listen. The priest wouldn't listen. The people that called themselves prophets, although they were false prophets, said, don't listen to Jeremiah. He's just a preacher of gloom and doom. We know what God is up to, not Jeremiah. And then at one point, a very dramatic scene in Jeremiah 36, when the king, Jehoiakim, burns Jeremiah's scroll. He burns his scroll. It says that um, it was the ninth month and the king was sitting in the winter house and there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. And as Jehuda read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. This is the king rejecting the word of God that Jeremiah gave and threw it into the fire. They, they would not listen. And so Jesus is saying, history is repeating itself again. But now the stakes are even higher because this time God didn't just send a servant. God has sent his son. And you're rejecting the son. And in rejecting me, you are like builders who reject the cornerstone of the building that God is building the very stone that holds everything together. And so the consequence is the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. Jerusalem, the temple, the religious leaders in Jerusalem are no longer going to be at the epicenter of what God is doing. God is creating a new people that will include the Jews, but also the Gentiles a people who will produce the fruit of the kingdom. That's the primary application of this principle. It's about that monumental transition in the way that God is unfolding his plan of salvation in the world. Okay, so that's the original application. What about us? Can we broaden this out? Well, I think so. I think we can broaden this parable out because Jesus says anyone who rejects the cornerstone. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. God's judgment will land on anyone who rejects the Son. 
And so I think we can broaden this out. And I think we can say that the tenant farmers are acting like people in the world who rebel against God. Many people today who live as though God doesn't exist, as though God, they're not going to be accountable for what they do. As if their, their gifts and their talents and their ability and, and their money and their possession, as if all of that isn't a gift from the creator, but it's their own possession, their own doing. One preacher put it this way, we want the gifts, but not the giver. Happy to have the gifts of life, but we don't want to live under the authority of the giver. We want the fruits, but we don't want a heavenly father. And so people have cast God off and remade God in, in our own image and likeness. We're spiritual, we're not religious. We don't want any religious authority like the Bible telling us what to believe. So we're spiritual, we're not religious. We look within, not outside of ourselves to find God. And inside we find the divine force or God or cosmic energy or something. But we don't find God the creator and redeemer of the world. That's kind of where we're at today in many parts of our culture. Isn't that the case? And, and, and people live as if God hasn't spoken definitively in Jesus Christ, as if there was no Jesus and his perfect life, death, and resurrection. We'll just create God ourselves as if God hasn't spoken. What are the consequences of that kind of mentality, of that kind of rejection of the biblical God? What can happen to a culture, much less individuals, when we turn our back on God who's revealed himself clearly in Jesus Christ? Listen to what Helmut Tillichy, a great German preacher, wrote in his sermon on this parable. This is a long quote. I'm doing something that preachers shouldn't do, which is to quote lengthy passages. But you're a good congregation, and you're going you're gonna to track it all the way through. Now, this is a man who lived through the Nazi period of Germany. And before Nazism, what had happened to Christianity is Christianity had been gutted out, relativized, compromised, demythologized by liberal theology watered down. In the Western world, we have great faith in humanity, Tillichy writes. We have our ideals. We sing our hymns to freedom. Thrills run up and down our backs when we think of the noble traditions we have. Have we forgotten where these ideals really come from? Have we forgotten him who was the pure image of man in his divine design? Have we forgotten him who dwelt among us in our flesh and blood? Have we forgotten him who did not love us because we are worth loving, but loved us, you and me, precisely in our need and guilt? Are we really going to be like these tenants and claim as our own what we call Western humanitarianism as if this ideal were the product of our own mind and spirit? Human dignity, inalienable rights, as if we invented these things. If so, then this ideal will decay and degenerate in our hands. Then man will become material, community will become no more than an apparatus, and love for one's neighbor will become merely human relations. And hasn't all this already happened? Pretty powerful. 
Are we really going to be like these tenets and claim as our own what we call our Western humanitarianism as if this ideal were the product of our own mind and spirit? So it matters as a culture whether or not we reject God's son. The, the very roots of some of the ideals that we prize in our culture go back to the God of the Bible and the God revealed in Jesus Christ. At the end of this parable, Jesus asked this question. This is, the, this is the hook here. When the owner comes, what will he do to these tenants? And they said to him, he will put those wretcheds to a wretched or miserable end and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their season. You see, he's got them on the hook. He knows that this is the appropriate action that the owner's going to take. It's right, it's reasonable, it's just that the owner is going to do this. This owner who's reached out again and again, has been rejected again and again, to finally pronounce enough is enough. Even the Pharisees and the chief priests recognize that this is right. And the point of this parable is that God's judgment is just. Is the owner just in doing what he did finally? Yes. Is God just when he brings judgment on the people who've rejected his son? And Jesus is driving this parable to the point where really the only reasonable response is, yeah, God's judgment is just. And so Jesus teaches us in the scripture, and we say this in our creeds, that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. There will be a final day when the time for responding to him and his loving overtures will finally be over. The door will be closed. The window will be shut. And those who've separated themselves from God and his son will be separated from God and his son forever. And that's not a pleasant thought. And it wasn't pleasant to Jesus to pronounce judgment on Jerusalem. In fact, a little bit later, we see him crying out because of the judgment that he sees that's coming on Jerusalem in verse 37 of chapter 23. O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to you, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. And of course, we know historically what happened to Jerusalem in AD 70. And the temple was destroyed. We can trust that God's judgment was always going to be in harmony with his love and his patience and his perfect justice. The good news, of course, is that this day, this season, is the time of God's salvation. This is the season of God's forbearance. This is the period of God's mercy. There still is time. There's time to continue to turn to the Son. There's time, as Paul the Apostle says in the Philippians text, to press on, to keep clinging, to keep towards the goal, to keep at the feet of Jesus and his mercy for the forgiveness of our sins. There's still time to witness. There's still time to tell friends and family and neighbors and to pray for them that they would come to know God the judge as their Redeemer, their merciful Savior, in Jesus Christ, His Son. There's still time to help us who believe these truths to live uh, as those true 
that a day of uh, reckoning is coming, a day of judgment. Give us compassion on those who have rejected you, Lord Jesus. Help us to pray for them. And help us to be willing to speak and to share our life with them. And to love them. Lord, help us as a church to be fruitful because uh, you can remove your presence and your blessing from a part of the vineyard that's not fruitful. So help us, God, to listen to you, to not be like the chief priests and the Pharisees who close their ears to your word, but to respond in obedience and in gratitude. We ask it in your holy name. Amen. Amen.